You're listening to the RSA Conference podcast, where the world talks security. Hi, this is Davi Ottenheimer. I'm here at the RSAC TV podcast, and I'll do a quick introduction of myself. And then it's an honor and a privilege to be here with Tim Jenkin, our first recipient of the Humanitarian Award, uh, our inaugural year for this award. So myself, I'm uh, head of product security now at MongoDB. I'm sometimes known as Flying Penguin. Uh, quite a few years of experience in the industry, but before that I studied history, and I, perhaps that's what makes this inter- interview for me so appealing. Uh, this is really a story about history and encryption, so it marries the world together. Uh, Tim, uh, you're now our award winner, and uh, I'd like to do a little background now on the situation you were in, really. Let's go through history quickly to set this up. I'm not sure everybody knows what was going on in the period in which you were uh, living and what you saw on the on the ground firsthand. Uh, for me, World War II ends basically, and there's a war in the entire world against apartheid, uh, if you will. So white supremacy, the Nazis were defeated, but then suddenly apartheid comes to power in 1948 in South Africa. This leads not long after to opposition, and the party that was opposing apartheid, the ANC, African National Congress. Uh, is banned in 1960 after the Sharpsville Massacre when the police are uh, shooting people in the back even. Uh, And that leads soon after 1964 to people being jailed. So the leadership of the opposition party to white supremacy in South Africa now is being put in jail. And this leads to exile. And when people are leaving the country and they're working from outside as uh, foreign recruits, some of them are able to come back into the country. And simply by passing out propaganda or leaflets leads to their imprisonment. And this now brings us to your situation. In the 1970s, you are coming into South Africa, you're handing out leaflets, and this leads to your arrest, essentially. You're incarcerated by the police, right? Ah, that's correct. But we weren't simply standing on the street corner handing out leaflets like that. It was, um, we were members of a proscribed organization. So even pronouncing that you belong to that organization would lead to imprisonment so we couldn't just hand out leaflets like that we had to use all kinds of unique methods like throwing them out of tops of buildings Uh, we developed this device called a leaflet bomb that sounds terrifying but it was just a small explosive device really a can filled with leaflets and uh, a timer and you would put this in the street maybe in a rubbish bin or something like that And then after a few minutes, we'd go bang and the leaflets would fly up into the air. Uh, Sometimes we had exploding uh, banners which would work in the opposite direction, like a huge rolled out banner with uh, leaflets inside hanging from a high building with a timing device and it would go bang and the the banner would unfurl and the leaflets would fall into the street below. So this to me speaks to the ingenuity, the, you know, the inventiveness that you had to have at the time, and you're just simply trying to get the message out that That's apartheid correct. should end. That's correct. And that led to incarceration. You're branded now as a terrorist with a life sentence, was that? No, I ended up with a 12-year sentence. 12-year 12 sentence. 12 years sentence, yeah. Okay, but Nelson Mandela had a life sentence for being a leader of the organization. That's correct, yes. Well, he had four life sentences. Four life sentences, <laughs> yeah. Okay, yeah. so you're in jail and you effectively break out of jail over 18 months. You study and figure out how to get through 14 locked doors. Yeah. That leads to your freedom, right? Okay, so that, again, the ingenuity, I mean, this becomes a metaphor for life, essentially. Now, every time you run into an obstacle, you're being essentially an inventor, 
in the sense of security, to break through the obstacle to get to freedom. Yes, the uh, prison escape, as you say, it's, uh, it's a metaphor for how I approached subsequent pro projects in my life. So I always, when I'm faced with a, with a challenge, I see life as consisting of a number of doors, just as it was in the prison. And each door is a barrier, something that you come up against, so a challenge, something that you have to breach. Uh, and that's really how we got out of the prison. Not by lying in our beds and, and just imagining a way out. We couldn't figure out how to get out. But we knew that each time you made another key, it allowed you a little bit further and your plan would change according to your ability to get to the next level. And so really it's theory and practice. These things work together. You can't just have a theory and this actually, when we were in the prison, there were those who thought, why are you making all these keys? Because each time you make a key, you're actually endangering us because now you've got another object and you've got to hide it and so on. They said, why can't you just think about it? Think of a way out and then make what you need for that plan. But we said, we don't know what we can do, we don't know what's beyond the next barrier, so how can we think what to do? So you can't approach projects like that because each barrier, you don't know what's beyond the barrier, you don't know what's on the other side. So it's only when you've got through the next barrier that you, there's a different vista, you see different things. So then your plan has to change. So you, you can't have a plan right in the beginning. So I've always approached problems like that and it's always paid off. So the project we're going to talk about had a number of doors, if you like, uh, barriers, uh, things that we had to accomplish. And we didn't know how to do that in the beginning because we were operating, this is in the 1980s. Uh, so we were pioneers in the computer field, really. We didn't know what kind of equipment there was had no background in this kind of thing. There were no courses we could go, go on to learn about this stuff. There were very few books you could buy. So really we had to be very practical. So we were faced with enormous challenge and each time we broke through that challenge, greater challenges were out there. That's such an amazing philosophy. Them, yeah. So you take this amazing philosophy and you effectively, you do what no one said could be done, right? The point at which the story starts for me is the encryption, but you've already accomplished so much by breaking out of prison yeah. with this philosophy. So now that you're out and you go back to London, you essentially start building a communication. Well, you start with the encryption mm -hmm. and then you build a communications network. Uh, for me, in this transition, what's interesting is that you, you make it simple to use and you approach it as something that should be no special skill or knowledge required. Right, yeah. And you do it in a way, like you say, you couldn't really go and find training from others, so or who could you trust as well? Mm. So you couldn't just tell people that you were doing this. So you're building essentially a very easy to use system for people to use very safely mm. with almost no input from others. Yes, we had to, in the mid 1980s, we were approached because we'd been experimenting with uh, encryption and early computers and early communication methods really just because of our own experience of doing encryption by hand 
and we realize the limitations of that. And doing it by hand means it goes very slowly, so you can't communicate very much information. And in fact, that's what led to our arrest, because we couldn't communicate properly. We couldn't get it across to our handlers that we were in danger, or even send them information where they could have concluded that we were in danger and should have come out of the country. So we started fiddling with computers and, and developed some very basic kind of uh, encryption programs. But it was only in the mid-1980s that we were approached by the ANC leadership. And they said to us, we want to send back into the country leadership figures because they realized that the struggle itself wasn't progressing as rapidly as they'd expected. And this was because the leadership were living in exile and the activists were being sent into the country to do whatever, set up uh, underground groups themselves, uh, connect with trade unionists, do reconnaissance, all kinds of things. But they couldn't connect They couldn't other. really communicate with the leadership. So you had a situation where people would be sent into the country on a mission. So they would be briefed outside of the country, sent into the country to do something. And very often that in itself was a very dangerous activity because obviously the enemy, the South African regime at the time, were watching. Right. They were monitoring very everything that we were doing. Yep. And of course they were monitoring the borders. So if anybody was climbing over the border fence, they would it was a very dangerous occupation and, <laughs> and the attrition rate was very high and many people just ended up in prison not doing anything at all. Or dead. Or dead. Yeah. Uh, but those who did get through would go and perform whatever activity they had been uh, asked to do and then they would do that and then there was still no communication so maybe the, th the operation backfired or it couldn't be done because the the intelligence they'd received beforehand was incorrect or right. not sufficient or whatever and so the thing would fail or they'd get arrested because right. then they would then do something undisciplined because they got frustrated and there Which was no communication. You had experienced yourself, right? We'd experienced So ourselves. 1979 you're out of jail and mid-80s you're being asked mm. can you come up with a better system? So the first stage, I put it in the three phases in yeah. my mind. There's mm. the first stage of improving the technology itself the second phase is really getting people to use it in a disciplined yeah, way, in yeah. a way that's effective. Yeah. Uh, and you called it Vula, Operation Vula, because that means to open, Vulnbela, yes. right? And Vlela. It was called Operation Vula because they wanted to open the ways. They'd realized at this stage that you can't have this situation with the leadership outside and, and, and the operatives inside. The leadership themselves needed to be the operatives and to get them inside the country and the operatives could be there, but you needed to be in the country to mm -hmm. change the political situation. You can't have a situation where your whole movement is split in two and there's no way of talking to each other. I think this resonates today because everyone yeah. talks about the need for real-time information, for information sources that are uh, working to be updated all the time, transactional-based yeah. systems. So you in the 80s are building a transactional system that yeah. has encryption at its core because the risk of being discovered. Mm. So in this situation, you built a system that never failed. 
as far as you know, uh, nobody was ever caught, nobody was ever compromised uh, during that period That's that you're right. running. A 1988 now, you start running it, to 1990, there was mm. never a failure. Can we really prove a negative, though, that there was no one ever inside the system? Do we? Well, you can never prove it, but, uh, you know, everybody who was sent in were the most trusted caters, as it were. So there could have been someone who was operating in the enemy, but these were people who were highly selected. Right. So it's very doubtful that there were any moles amongst us. But you did have Thatcher who was supporting the South African government at the time. You're in England. There's some chance that they were monitoring you. Um, oh, we've no doubt they were monitoring us. That right. was a given. You just, that's the environment we had to operate in. We just mm -hmm. assumed the Brits were monitoring us, but they were they never exposed themselves, they never, uh, never had any sense that we were being monitored. It's interesting, again, because the key management that you learned in the jail practices and the fact that you escaped, I mean, someone would have stopped you in theory if you had been caught during that time. Maybe mm. we can apply the same lessons to the key management that you developed for the encryption system because yeah. they might have stopped you if they had actually been able to see what you were doing. So is it fair to say they just never saw or they were too arrogant to look? Or Are you talking about the British? British or South Africans, anybody who was trying to compromise the system that you were mm. you're designing for threats, your threat model yeah, included yeah. many parties. I just don't know. We developed a very unorthodox system, so those who were looking for it probably didn't understand what was happening here because it didn't fit any preconceived ideas they had of how people communicated. The South Africans themselves I think they were victims of their own racist propaganda. They didn't believe that black people, or at least a black organization as they saw the ANC, would even understand anything about encryption and computers. But very few people did in those days. We're talking about the 1980s. The very first IBM PC was released in 1981, and it took a few years for people to learn how to use these things. Uh, it's not to say there weren't computers before 1981, but they were not used by the general public. So no one knew anything about computers, including those who were monitoring us, I think, especially the South African uh, regime or their spies who were circulating in London. They wouldn't have known very much about these technologies themselves. And they certainly wouldn't have thought that we were using them because we didn't really have great resources, you know, we weren't a state power, we were just a, a small political organization living in exile. And it works, it works for and against you also. It's, yeah. You have a rapid adoption of computers, so you can give them to a business person. So mm. later in the Vulik operation, you're actually using the fact that somebody might be doing business with a PC and the fact that people don't really understand mm. what's yeah. going on to hide the encrypted channel that you're yeah, using. Yeah, yeah. So. I think it's interesting how you're in the sort of the vanguard in this revolution of personal computing and you're mm. using it effectively to get into, to open up South Africa yeah. by giving it to yeah. people who can, dis the whites because they're mm. the protected species in the context of South Africa, mm. Mm. who would never be suspected of mm. doing anything against the government. That's right. So which would be the hardest phase? I mean, going back to, you have an encryption phase, you're teaching yourself encryption, um, you're doing it in a way that no one really would uh, compromise the operation. Uh, then you're building a communication system of teaching people how to use it safely so they wouldn't be compromised mm. through careless practices. And then 
as it grows, it really scales quickly, yeah. you're connecting all the hubs together and even preparing for them to communicate directly. Uh, where would you say the dip most difficult? And if I can give you a quick example, you mentioned your writing that when the coin was dropped in the phones that you were using to communicate, public phones, it sometimes corrupted the messages, but you worked around that. Yes, yes. Well, I think we need to explain how the system worked. You see, first, uh, we developed the encryption system, I guess, first. Uh, I wouldn't like to say that was the most difficult part of it because uh, uh, we developed that part prior to the operation. So we'd been experimenting with that stuff for some years, although we hadn't developed a, you know, a, a mission critical system by that stage, we're just sort of fiddling around. Um, the next phase was trying to figure out a way of communicating between South Africa and, well, essentially with the leadership in Zambia, Lusaka, which if you look at a map, it's just two countries away. But we understood that if there was any communication between people inside South Africa and Zambia, it would automatically be suspicious because South Africa had no connection with Zambia at all, really. As far as the South African regime was concerned, Zambia was enemy territory. That's where the ANC lived. Mm -hmm. There was one country in between them, which was still called Rhodesia and became Zimbabwe in 1980, but we're talking... Yeah, so there was, there was Zimbabwe there. So we couldn't communicate directly with Zambia, so it had to go via some other country. And that other country needed to be London because that's where I was. So in fact, we had this peculiar situation where to communicate between South Africa and Zambia, you needed to go via London. So London was really the hub mm -hmm. with these two spokes coming of, down. Of international phone lines at the time. Of international phone lines. Not this terribly is, reliable. We're talking about a period before the public internet. Right, right. So there is no internet, so we couldn't even think, oh, how can we use the internet? Right. There wasn't one. There were no lines. There was nothing to use. So we had to, in a sense, invent our own internet. I mean, that's an analogy because we're looking backwards in time. We know about the internet. At that point in time, we didn't know about the internet. But we knew we had to set up some kind of a communication channel. But there are no lines. So how do you communicate using computers between London, uh, South Africa and London and from London to Zambia? And these Zambia had probably the worst telephone system in the, on the entire planet. Mm -hmm. It barely worked at all. The lines were, if you phoned someone, there was just a loud crackle and you could hardly That's what's so fascinating. Anything. When yeah. you get into the technical details of mm. the solutions, you would look at commercial solutions, you might yeah. attempt them, but they weren't dealing with the practical application on the ground. They weren't, they weren't. We looked at commercial um, devices. There were all kinds of little crypto machines you could get and um, we couldn't survive in the environment. We yet. tested them. We sent someone into South Africa to go and test it, and it just didn't really work. And it failed on a number of issues. One was like it had such a small memory, so you couldn't send very long messages. It had no way of storing the messages. Uh, the worst part of it was that you had to have two people. So 
that's fine if you're sending messages between two people in Europe. You just phone up and say, are you ready? And then... Ready to receive. Ready to receive. Right. Okay, press the button. So instead you so set up a dead drop effectively where nobody had to be present and they could come correct. when it was so, safe. Yeah. Um, what we did ultimately was use a system that involved ancient technologies, telephone answering machines and tape recorders. So how it worked was uh, those inside the country had a, a little kit that consisted of a, of a laptop, a very early model laptop with... The old Toshibas. An old Toshiba with an operating system on a ROM, which was actually a very good thing because it means it can't really be hacked. It's hardwired into the computer. Of course, there's no internet, so there was no point in building backdoors into the operating system. Mm -hmm. And um, so you had this laptop and we'd uh, written the crypto program and you would simply type away on a little text editor. And then from there, uh, we had this whole, well, this whole interface really. It was a single program that did everything, it did your file management and all the rest of it. You, you taught it. yourself the program at this point, right? So you had taught yourself, you'd left jail, yeah. you taught yourself the program, created the system, yeah. chose the hardware, I suppose, and yeah. planned it out, created yeah. the kit, yes. and now you have people that are communicating in essentially an environment that other tools that were commercially produced yes. couldn't survive. And I think couldn't at one work, point yeah. you mentioned your system was so superior to what was on the market mm. that you could hear bells ringing in That's the calls. That's correct. So, well, let me just finish how, how this thing works, because then you would understand <laughs> why the bells are important. Mm. So you type your message, you encrypt it, and then you send it out through the serial port at the back into a device called an acoustic modem, which is the very first type of modem that existed where you have two rubber cups and you use the handset of your telephone and you push it into this thing, and the one side is for sending and the other is for receiving. Uh, we just dismantled this whole thing and took the electronic guts out of it and put it in a single box. And this is in your house in London where you have a lab and you yeah, have all the Yeah, so we equipment. have all the tools and everything. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So you send the digital information into the acoustic modem, it turns it into sound, and you record that onto a small tape recorder, and then you take the tape recorder to a public telephone. And we had to use public telephones because sending it over a private line is like giving away this is the where it's come again. from. Right. So you can't, you can't do that. Random phones, public space. Yeah, so random shared. phones, always a different mm -hmm. public telephone. Uh, you dial up the number in London, a telephone answering machine answers and says, please, just like a normal answering machine, please leave a message after the tone. And then you play this digital sound, a long screeching sound, uh, into the phone and when it's finished, you put the phone down, and that's how you send the message. To receive a message, we used a system of um, pages. We had a set of codes. So uh, the operative inside the country would have the page attached to their belt, and it would go beep, beep, and they'd look, and they'd see the message, and they would know that there's a number of messages to pick up. How many up. messages to go get off um, the answering machine. So, so you've created this asynchronous way of yeah. delivering and receiving messages which increases the right. safety of the operation of yeah. the system. That's right. So again, you make it sound so easy and in retrospect looking back it's such mm. an elegant plan. Yeah. So you've effectively now done what everyone says can't mm. be done again and you're just knocking down door by door. That's correct. If sound quality is an issue mm. you find a way around that. You have error handling. Yeah. Um, if 
time of day is an issue. You even had radio at some point, if I understand. You had radio phones that you could use and some early like cell phones even? Yes, so that was really the second stage after the, um, the public telephones because it becomes very expensive sending because we're di dialing through to London as a long distance phone. Mm -hmm. And uh, we're using phone cards. So that would only last for a few minutes and then you'd have to use another one. And it was a very expensive way to do it mm -hmm. and quite cumbersome. And then you had to buy the uh, phone cards and that was another security issue. Why are you buying this pile of, of phone cards? So, um, yeah, so the, the messages were just being sent from public telephones and there was background noise, you know, cars going past and motorcycles. And uh, you mentioned this thing, which was a story I told about um, one day someone was sending a message, say at midday or something, and the church bells or the bells of the city all were playing in the background and we could hear that in the, the received message. But it didn't affect the digital data that came across. It was mm. just background noise. It just paints a picture for me of how you had achieved so much by mm. this point. You could sit back and actually say, my system is working so effectively. Mm. I mean, the achievements of creating the encryption, achievements of creating a system that was uh, usable for people that wouldn't get them killed or captured yeah. or arrested. But ultimately the achievement was you were able to communicate all the way to Nelson Mandela. Yeah. So having been right. a prisoner yourself, mm. you understood the, the importance of getting into the cell and you mm. made that happen, which you didn't plan. Again, you changed yeah, direction yeah, as yeah. you needed to, probably never saw it coming, but by the mm. time the operation was over, mm. you were sending messages from Nelson Mandela to the entire ANC. Well, that's correct. This is another instance of the uh, what I talked about in the beginning, it was uh, like each door you open. So talking to Nelson Mandela was never an object, an objective of the Operation Vula. We didn't set it up in order to, to speak to Nelson Mandela. But once the system was running and we realized that, hey, we can do all these amazing things. We can connect Nelson Mandela in a prison with the ANC leadership in Lusaka or wherever they were in the world. Um, we had access to Nelson Mandela through his lawyer. So the initial step was really to smuggle a little message to Nelson Mandela about how the system worked and that at subsequent meetings he should um, write up notes about what he was discussing with the regime. And we managed to get into him. He was allowed to receive books and so on. And we had some specially doctored books where the with a hardcover book and the the cover was split on the inside to make a little compartment in the in the in the book cover and it was sealed in a special way that no one could see so inside the cover of the book was the message coming in and uh, Mandela knew how to open these books carefully and get the message out read it and then write down on a piece of paper what he was discussing with the government ministers amazing. and put it back into the book and he'd say, right, I've read that book, you can take it back now. It's such an amazing story. It's so hard for me to believe that so few people have really captured yeah. this or understood yeah. what happened in yeah. these, these few, I mean, it was basically two years when this operation was running. And, and just to emphasize how successful it had been, when the ANC was legalized and one of the end nodes, one of the houses was careless, mm. maybe became a little too confident, they were compromised afterwards, and yeah. those two did die. They were murdered by the police. That's correct, um, because they didn't fo follow the rules. You know, we had very, very strict rules about how the system operated. So 
when you received the message, you were never supposed to print it out at all. Uh, you were meant to read it, maybe take some notes about the salient points, um, and then just get rid of the message. I mean, essentially, the messages never really existed because the way we'd set up these computers was that everything operated in, in a RAM disk. So you would type your message into the RAM memory, you would encrypt it in there, you would then save it onto the tape recorder, and when you switch the computer off, it all disappeared. Oh. So there's no physical or hard copy of it. It's ephemeral. And you weren't one meant time. to yeah. one time everything, and you weren't meant to print it out. But these guys, especially after the unbanning of the ANC, because Operation Bula kept going for a year and a half afterwards, uh, they just became a bit lax, and they thought, well, you know, we've won the struggle, and. and uh, it makes sense, sort you know, of, but you don't know when <laughs> but you're still, sick. still, you don't do those sort of things. You're still running this operation, and the, the rules apply, and you, you can't just, well, they were saving them on disks as well. I think this is the problem with these stories sometimes. Mm. We know this from the Enigma mathematicians mm. in Poland and so yeah. forth. It's, you, you keep it quiet after the, it's over because yeah. you don't know exactly when it's safe to talk about it, and yeah. so no one really yeah. finds yeah. out how it played a role, such a mm. fundamental role in ending apartheid. Mm. It's interesting. Um, so I guess another thing that comes to mind is that really you had gotten so effective as to create an intelligence operation for the ANC mm. that was at a state level. It's almost like turnabout was fair play, where um, one of the anecdotes I ran across was in 1974, the South African government, the uh, Bureau of Secret Service, had spies in the skies where they used flight attendants to spy on everybody who was flying into the, mm. or out of the country. Mm. And at some point, you had also used flight attendants to smuggle the, the key disks, for example, or That's the materials great. you needed yeah, into yeah. the country. So you had used the system that the state used essentially against them. And you did that several times yeah. uh, by getting informants from the police and so forth. Mm. Was that part of the original strategy or did that just develop over time? Well, that, uh, yeah, it developed over time. I mean, the system we developed, or the encryption system we used, was a one-time system. Um, everyone knows that one-time pad or the one-time system is the most secure, although it's a very, very simple system, but the algorithm encrypts each character on its own. So there's no pattern, there's no mathematical route that you can follow as in most modern encryption systems. So once you, you can't really, because any answer can be correct, so mm -hmm. theoretically it's unbreakable, but it has this huge key distribution problem right. because your keys are as long as your message. So if you're sending through kilobytes of messages every day, you've got to have kilobytes of Keys. Key disks. Right. So we were sending in these, well, all you had in those days was 1.44 megabyte uh, right. floppy disk. That was the biggest thing you could get. So these things were filled chock a block with random data that was used to encrypt the message. And um, we were sending in boxes of these disks full of data. And these had to be taken into the country somehow. And we figured out this method of using. Uh, you know, airline assistants, air hostesses, and so on, who took in these things. So in a sense, that was the weakness of the entire system because she could have been working for the other side. But we worked out a method of concealing these boxes of disks in such a way 
that if they'd been tampered with, the guys inside would have known. Mm -hmm. So we had secret little things mm -hmm. on the boxes and the way they were taped up and sealed and all the rest of it. And nothing ever happened. So we pretty, are pretty sure that you know, no one opened those boxes and <laughs> right. took copies of the data. Again, just that the would have been the work. That would have been the worst possible outcome. Of course, yeah, it'd be terrible. Know, because then, and when you did have a compromised node, it didn't compromise the whole system. That was another thing you had no. designed for it to be adaptive. Correct. Correct. Yeah. So you shut it down. Yeah. Changed the numbers. Yeah. And you continued on, and it didn't compromise anything yeah. else. No, it didn't. Yeah. That's amazing. The, the list of achievements just goes mm. on and on in this system. Mm. Um, and today, I mean, I work on cryptography myself, and I work with a lot of other cryptographers, and we talk about the practical application and mm. the threat models. But you've been there, done that. Yeah. And I feel like the story is just so powerful. Yeah. So we've talked about the history, the situation you're in this list of accomplishments that just is endless. Mm. And then ultimately it comes to lessons learned. And I think you've been an advocate for a few key points. Uh, one of which is the OPSEC is important because it's not just about the crypto system, mm. which seems to be thematic throughout your yeah, whole experience. Yeah, yeah. Right? You were teaching people, um, you couldn't trust commercial systems, for example. That's so you were teaching people to use systems that you created and it was very yeah. important they follow exactly your procedure for your yeah, devices. Yeah. Right? Uh, I think another one was ease of use. And so I guess the question for me is, you know, given the lessons learned, have we achieved anything ourselves in this uh, other world that we're in today? It, are the options still too hard for us to use, do you think, in our market of encryption products? Um, I think so, actually. I mean, um, a lot of encryption takes place um, without us even knowing it. I mean, the HTTPS protocol is encrypting everything that we do over the internet and we don't have to enter keys, it's all just happens without anything. But most people don't use uh, encryption on email and often wonder why. Mm. I mean, it doesn't really matter if you're just talking about the cat or something, but often you do have uh, information that you hope someone else doesn't, you don't want other people to read. Mm -hmm. Of course. And I've used um, some of these systems with email and they're quite tricky, you know, the average person. They are. Yeah. Can't do it. <laughs> yeah. Just don't understand it. How you know you got a private key and a public key and all this sort of thing and where should you put it and and all that kind of stuff. And most people don't understand that. Disappointing that it's still so it hard. It is. For us. It is. So our system, we had various levels of of coding and encryption. So the messages themselves, if you got the plain text and you didn't understand what we were talking about, it, they didn't make sense because practically every word was a code word. So we had codes for names of people, codes for places. Uh, you never wrote a telephone number directly. We had codes you had to do something to the, f the phone number, like add a number in a certain sequence to kind of encrypt the number itself. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. This is manually. and. Um, you would never use like the first tense to just describe yourself. So you were just a name in this list of names of people. So say they said, go to the bank and get money. You wouldn't say, oh, I got the money because that kind of gives it away that it was you. Right. So you would say, John went to the bank this morning and received the money and passed it to somebody else. One of the lessons name, I, so I definitely pick up that metadata is very revealing and it's almost like as I read your lessons is, learned from is. the 1980s, yeah. I'm thinking the internet still is not safe. Yeah, absolutely. So, yeah. And I see this in, method. you know, I, I do communicate with a few people using encryption 
And I look at these messages and I shake my head and they've all got the same pattern. It's like, dear Tim, and then they end off with their name, you know. So that was one of our rules too, that messages must never look the same. You've got to change the structure of it, put some random data at the top and the bottom, never repeat it's, things daily. It's really a lot of training. So we have to get yeah, better at teaching training. people, which you were so successful at. It's and just amazing to me that... We had these very strict rules and, and people stuck to them because... Their life was on the line. I think that had something to do with yeah, it. Right? When life is on the line and, and, and you're doing it all the time, mm -hmm. constantly, you know, all day long, you were sending these things. And so, so the, we would pick up the patterns from each other and you know, sometimes you'd have to point out an error and this kind of thing. So my final question as we run out of time here, unfortunately, mm. I could talk to you forever, honestly. <laughs> it's such an awesome topic and there's yeah. so little written about it. Um, you've said, you've written several times that communication is the most important weapon in any conflict and that without good communication, the battle is lost, even with overwhelming physical uh, teams or with people. Mm. So with you know, everything on your side, if you have bad communication, you're mm. going to lose. And I think in the context of this morning's keynote, which we watched with uh, Moxie Marlinspike, when he said the utopia may be ending and people are starting to treat communication as weapons, I think mm. these are two incongruous yeah. perspectives. You're telling us that communication is the most important weapon from a long time ago. Yeah. The lesson yeah. from history here seems to be important for our present. Yeah, so would you agree with Moxie, or do you think, um, is the utopia over, or has it never been here, and it's always been? I don't think it's been here yet. <laughs> no, absolutely, and I think uh, the entire operation uh, emphasized that, because we had this odd situation with leadership here and activists here, and no communication. That's why the thing never developed, or took so long to develop. And it's only once we started connecting these things that Within two years, we were able to do more than they'd achieved in 20 years before. Amazing. You know, just because now you can communicate mm -hmm. in more or less real time. From the 1960s, yeah. incarceration of Nelson Mandela, yeah. and then suddenly from 88 to 90, everything unravels. Everything, yeah. and no one got caught. Right. Whereas no one... before that, people were just being imprisoned because right. they were, you know, phoning and and... Well, they just couldn't communicate in any way whatsoever except using the postal system, you know. And, and ultimately it comes, full, it comes mm. full circle for you because you were arrested for pamphleting, yeah. pamphlet bombs, as you said. Mm. And then by the end of the operation, when it uh, basically it becomes no longer necessary, but you're able to push pamphlets into the country and distribute yeah. them in a way that That's you hadn't right. been able to for mm. a decade. Yeah, yeah. So amazing that uh, there must have been a real feeling of accomplishment at that point when you not only had freed yourself, but you were freeing yeah, everyone yeah, to do the yeah, thing that you yeah, thought yeah. they should be able to do. So in a sense, we broke back into the prison of South Africa, you know. I was in prison in South Africa, broke out, got my freedom, and broke back in through the communication system, got right into Nelson Mandela's cell, and uh, we were distributing all this literature internally, because now we could set up printing machines, printing shops, you get the money in to buy all the equipment, which I couldn't before, uh, and things just started to move. You know, and now you can connect up all these people, you can connect up different areas. So instead of just random groups of ANC activists roaming around the country doing their own things and being undisciplined, now everything is tightly held together and they can receive their orders and things start to work. Amazing. And that's what communications can do for you. It's 
that's right. obvious. <laughs> that's a beautiful story in security. Mm. I really hope it gets more traction and more people are able to look into it and read yes. some of the details of how it worked. I want to thank you for your time today and also thank you for uh, your service. I mean, the humanitarian award, I think, is just a small token of what really you deserve mm. for this work. And um, yeah, that's, that's all we have for today. But hopefully we can continue the conversation in the future. Hopefully. Yep. And uh, I think that the fact that you brought freedom to millions of people yeah. and ended the tyranny of white supremacy just speaks for itself that you were able to accelerate and help mm. with encryption is a story everyone should hear. All right. Thank you, Tim. Thanks, Danny. Yeah.